The Bob Murphy Show, episode 110. There's a tidal wave coming. What you gonna do? Get ready for another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. The podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. It's your source for commentary and interviews, conducted by a Christian and economist. Now here's your host, Bob Murphy. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. This one, I'm going to do some quick house cleaning regarding my remarks about coronavirus and the stock market back from in episode 108, the Brian Williams one. And then I'm going to focus on the main topic for today's episode, namely the Kelly Criterion, named after the researcher who discovered this principle while doing a project for AT&T's Bell Labs back in the 50s. And for those of you who have heard of it, it, it has to do with like, so-called scientific investing or optimal investing and portfolio management theory. So I always knew of this issue that was out there um, sort of in the academic, but also applied finance literature and in the real world hedge fund managers and stuff all know these principles and are at least vaguely familiar with the debates over it. But it wasn't until recently when I was doing work for a client where I went back and actually read all these papers that now I know enough to at least give you a taste of what the disputes were. Because it's pretty interesting, in my opinion. Okay, so anyway, as far as the stuff about the coronavirus and the impact on stock prices, what I had said back in episode 108 was something like, hey, a bunch of us have been warning for a long time that the stock market was overvalued, that the Fed had blown up another bubble. And so now that you know it's crashing before our eyes, that doesn't mean we were right. But when the critics of us, like the proponents in particular of the efficient market hypothesis, who are saying, oh, yeah, stock prices always reflect all the available information and don't listen to these people who think they can give you some sort of structural critique of stock prices. If, if it were really the case that we could know that the market was overvalued, then it would have sold off already, you know, that kind of stuff. So those people, when defenders of the alarmists regarding the stock market were kind of, you know, being uh, saucy with them when the stock market first started crashing, their response was to say, oh, come on, this is the coronavirus. Like, I, I don't think that the people who were warning about QE knew that there was going to be a pandemic in 2020. So that, no, they, they absolutely don't get to claim vindication here. So in response to that, I was making the modest point that I didn't think the fundamentals justified a drop. And at the time, it was like a 15% drop from the peak that was being largely attributed to coronavirus. So I was just saying, to me, I didn't see how you could make that work. That why, how you could say, ah, yes, the stock market is a rational reflection of the underlying fundamentals, or at least at any given moment, that's our best guess as to what the true value or correct valuation is. And so you, you would be wrong to think that the stock market was overvalued. How could you know such a thing? What hubris on your part? You know, that sort of mentality. I was saying, I didn't see how the news about the coronavirus could justify a 15% reduction 
in the market value of all the major corporations. And so then to motivate where I was coming from, I said stuff like, I mean, suppose you have a farm. You know, why, why does the farm have value at all, you know, in terms of market pricing? Why is there a capital value there? Well, because it's going to give a flow of harvests indefinitely into the future that the stuff you got to put into it in order to get food coming out of it, you know, that's it provided on net, it throws off stuff that we like. And we think that's going to have a market value in the foreseeable future. And so what's the present capitalized value of that thing? Take into account discount rates, blah, blah, blah. Something, all right, now if I told you you can't use the farm for the next six months, is that going to reduce its value by 15%? And I think so. And then I said, even airline travel, which is the thing that's really getting hit, right? I did a similar thing. I said, suppose you have a fleet of brand new jet aircraft that, you know, that were going to be for passengers. And now you learn, oh, I can't use it for six months. And so what I said in the episode was, so the flow of net income that ownership of those planes entitled you to, now you're just pushing back. I think I said push forward, but I should have said push back that flow of net income by six months. And, you know, these aircraft have a service life of what, 25, 30 years, especially with real low interest rates right now. I just, to me, it didn't seem plausible that shifting back the flow of net income that would accrue to the owner of a fleet of aircraft would reduce the current market value of that flow of net income by 15%. And so that's why I was trying to say, so even if this thing is pretty bad and really, you know, let's just exaggerate and say it just totally knocks out the net earnings from owning these companies for six months, still, would that make you mark down the spot price of owning the companies outright by 15% when you learn this new information? So that was what my argument was. And then Gene Callahan contacted me and he said, he made, I'll, I'll call it two separate points. So one, I think, it, you know, fair enough. And I sort of realized it myself after I recorded it. I said, ah, I'll just like go ahead and let it release and people, uh, you know, I'll clarify the, the inaccuracy. The other point that we made, I think is consistent with my original one. So one point is that, and these are my words, but Gene's discussion of the email he sent me made me crystallize what, what the issue was. Strictly speaking, if you own these companies, it's, it's not really that you're just displacing the net income for six months. Really what's happening is the revenue might get interrupted for six months. So my, with my, you know, think of the jet aircraft, the re, what I was thinking, what I had in mind is they could just fly them somewhere, like a big warehouse where the rent is real cheap and just store them, or even out in an open field somewhere if the elements aren't bad. I don't know anything about storing aircraft. So they could kind of just let them sit there for six months and then use them later. But in reality, like imagine you own a restaurant if you all of a sudden can't open for six months or nobody's going to bother showing up for six months because they're scared of catching something, well, you don't just get to postpone everything. It's not just the net income you took from your restaurant every month now. You don't get to see that for six months. You have plenty of fixed costs. So that was, that was the crucial thing that I glibly glossed over in my back of the envelope calculations was I was assuming everything could just be pushed back when no, really, it's the revenues get pushed back if you have fixed expenses, then those are still going to be there for the next six months. So for the airlines, yeah, maybe they could just move their jet somewhere where it's not real expensive to store them. But if they have 
contracts with a bunch of employees that they can't just break because, oh, the demand dropped that, you know, they have salaried employees or whatever that they are on the hook for. They got to still make those payroll payments, even if they have nobody buying tickets. And so that, you know, Dean was pointing out that that could really mess up what I was, what I was saying there. And, and absolutely the existing corporate ownership, you know, that entity, its value could drop precipitously because of this news, especially depending on the sector it's in. Okay. So that's, that was the thing that, yeah, okay. That was a fundamental conceptual flaw in my framing of it. Um, by the way, I still am going with my gut judgment that what we saw, the carnage in the markets, isn't a rational reflection of the change in the fundamentals due to the new information that came in. We used our Bayesian update. So I still agree with my overall view. It's just the way I tried to get you to see, come on, these numbers don't add up. I, I was leaving out something important in the analysis. Now, the other thing that Gene mentioned, and he he knows people like in the financial sector who work on this stuff. So that's not just him being abstract here. Um, but there are like derivative contracts that are issued with like some of this physical equipment being the collateral, things like that. So um, in particular, a lot of these big corporations are heavily leveraged. And so his point was, yeah, if they, if they just don't have cash coming in the door, for a few months, like that could be devastating to them. And they, you know, they'll, they'll get, they'll go bankrupt and get taken over by somebody else. So in the grand scheme, it's just a rearrangement. It's not that the value of all corporations in the world goes down by 15%. But if those corporations that happen to be listed on the major exchanges all happen to be, or many of them happen to be really levered and they really can't afford a hiccup at anything, or else the whole system crashes in terms of the you know the top five hundred. If we're talking about the S P five hundred or whatever, okay, fair fair enough. That's true, but that is consistent with what my what my point was that when guys like me were warning for years, whoa, there's a bubble in the equity markets. This is not you know that this this boom has been built on quicksand. The Fed's artificially low interest rates have led to male investments. I mean, if it wouldn't do, then if the markets crash, to say oh, it's not because of the stuff you were saying, Murphy. It's just because all these companies you know, didn't have any adequate reserves and they were all highly leveraged such that if there was a hiccup in the revenue coming in, even for a month, let's say, a lot of them would go belly up because they couldn't get financing to bridge that gap. The system was that razor tight and we needed the Fed to come in and pump in $1.5 trillion in 48 hours. Otherwise, all these companies start starving for, for reserves. That I mean, that's consistent with the warning, right? So if we say there's an acid bubble that blew up and then it pops, it's probably going to be, you know, there's going to be some immediate cause of why did the bubble pop? But that doesn't negate the fact that there was a bubble and the people warning about a bubble could have been right. So again, with all this, this chaos in the markets doesn't mean I was right in warning about QE2. People could still, in particular, say, no, I still am glad that I stayed in the market and didn't get out when Murphy started freaking out, okay? But the point is that just saying, oh, yeah, the companies are leveraged or something and they just took on way too much debt. Well, right, that's one of the problems of artificially low interest rates is companies do crazy stuff like issue debt and buy back their stock. So in principle, in, a, in Ancapistan, if a company did that, I wouldn't say it was necessarily crazy, but when they're doing it amidst... 0% interest rates and blah, blah, blah. That makes me think something's screwy. Okay. 
So there's that. Now, on to the main topic for today. There's, there's two things, there's two different ways of discussing what's, what's the so-called Kelly criterion for investing. And let me, so it's by J.L. Kelly Jr., John Larry Kelly Jr., a scientist who worked at Bell Labs. He's best known for formulating the Kelly criterion, a formula to determine what proportion of wealth to risk in a sequence of positive expected value bets to maximize the rate of return. That's a, that's actually a little inaccurate. But anyway, he worked at Bell Labs and in, I guess, 1956 was when he had this article. And let me mention too, you should try reading it. It's, it's not that hard to read. It's not like there's a bunch of math or anything, or there's not a ton of math. And the thing that's really neat about this, this principle that we're going to be talking about is um, something that, like I say, it, it, it's, a, it's a staple in financial economics and uh, quantitative finance and, and like the scientific approach to portfolio management, that kind of stuff. And yet, if you go read this paper where this was inaugurated or developed, it's not that this guy Kelly, because he's, you know, he's working for AT&T. And so you'd be wondering, uh, you know, how, how can that, how can that be? By the way, folks, I just looked up to make sure I have right. So yes, when Kelly was working for Bell Labs, it was AT&T. But then in the 80s, I think it got taken over by Nokia, in case you're confused. All right. So you might wonder, what, why would some guy working in the research arm for AT&T be talking about stock investing and things like that? Well, he wasn't. The actual paper had to do with information transmission, you know, communication over a wire. And that's what he was talking about. And then the particular application he used in the first part of the paper just to motivate it was to imagine that there's a guy who's getting tips on a, on a sporting event, like the horse races or something. And so with the aid of this information that he's getting via wire transmission, you know, how does that influence his gambling and that, that sort of thing, right? So that, that's, it's interesting to me that this principle that now mathematical economists were arguing over decades later still, and to this very day, even people argue about it such that, you know, someone has me, a client has me doing research on it. It's interesting that it was almost like a throwaway thing that this guy back then was doing it. In any event, here's the, so there's, there's two ways of describing it. So one way is to say, okay, if you have to make, if, if, if you're going to place a, a bet and you know that the probability of success, let's call it is, is Q, where Q is a number between zero and one, then how much of your bankroll should you wager on the bet? So that's what the, and the Kelly criterion here says, oh, you should wager the proportion of your bankroll specifically is 2Q minus one. That's what you should do. All right, so notice if Q is 0.5, right, one half, so it's a 50-50 gamble, and with all this stuff, we're assuming it pays even money, then you should invest 0%, right? Because two times 0.5 is one, minus one is zero. And if Q is less than 0.5, you should either not bet or bet against yourself, bet a negative amount in terms of the formula. All right, and then up to, if Q is one, right, meaning you know for sure you're going to win this bet, that's the probability of success, then bet everything, right? If you know for sure you're going to win, you want to just double your money. And so, 
and that the formula works there, that if Q is one, you plug it in. So what's two Q minus one? It's two times one is two minus one is one. And so you bet one fraction of your portfolio or your bankroll, all of it. Okay, so that's what we did. Now, that's mathematically equivalent, it turns out, to saying that what you should seek to do is maximize the expectation of the logarithm of your wealth. And so this ties into Daniel Bernoulli way back in the day solved or gave a solution to what was called the St. Petersburg paradox. All right, so I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole. I'm just connecting the two ideas in case some of you have heard of that stuff. And so Bernoulli, when he solved the St. Petersburg paradox, said, assume that what the person's trying to do is not maximize the expected value of the game or the payoff, but instead is maximizing the logarithm of the, of the payoff. And then that gives you a sensible answer in that context. And it just it turns out that that is mathematically equivalent to the Kelly criterion. Okay, so let me, to, to motivate for you, to, and so it, what I want to do now in the remaining time here is just show you folks why the Kelly criterion at first looks cool and then what some of the objections could be that some of the economists brought against it. So just for the context here, a lot of people in the financial sector think the Kelly criterion is the way to go. And you'll see why in a minute. And so, it, like I said, it's been called a scientific approach to gambling or to investment. And by the way, it's kind of funny that a guy who developed a principle with a, a, concerning a hypothetical person betting on horses, that that is now one of the bedrock principles, at least in some people's uh, approach to investing. <laughs> so that's kind of funny. Oh, in any event, um, and then I want, just, I want to show you the, the controversies just so you get a sense of what the disputes were over. I'm not here to try to tell you to believe or to endorse one or the other. And also my own views keep changing on it. This, I keep thinking about this issue and I keep saying, oh, wait a minute, but then there's this consideration. So anyway, the point of this is just to bring you up to speed on a really cool thing that some smart people argue about. All right, so first of all, let's just go back to when I was in high school and I would play blackjack and I got a book on blackjack. It wasn't, it wasn't called beat the dealer. It was like, a, it was a derivative. So it was in that genre, like beat the dealer was like the, 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 the path breaking book, I think in that genre. And then there were further ones. And so anyway, it was a system. First, it would teach you basic strategy. So if you were playing blackjack, with a freshly shuffled deck, you know, what's the quote optimal play to make in any given situation, right? So by, for the rest, I mean, I'm not going to bother explaining how blackjack works. You can stop this and go Google it if you, if you don't know. So, but what the basic strategy rule though, it would just show you saying, okay, for what, what you hold and given what the dealer's showing in his up card, what's your correct play to make? And then it would just do that for every possible situation you could find yourself in. And you would just memorize it. And a lot of the stuff is simple to, you know, like there's a lot of rules of thumb you can use. Like they quote, make sense. You know, like if you have in a hard 18 and the dealer showing a seven, you're not going to do anything with it. You're going to stay, right? Whereas if you have an 11 and the dealer holds a six, you're not going to stay. You're going to double down, right? So a lot of the rules make perfect sense but there were certain ones that were iffy, you know, things like if you have a 12 and the dealer has a two or a three, what should you do? Stuff like that, where, 
you know, you're, you're, it's, you're not, it's not as sure what to do. And, and in some cases, the rules might have slightly defied your expectations. So, for example, you, you can't merely say, just assume the dealer's got a 10 under there. Like, that's, that actually helps a lot with stuff, but it's not, it's not a shortcut that works for all of the so-called correct plays that they told you. So now when you think about it, what does it mean to say a correct play, right? When this book is telling you, oh, let me just finish train of thought. So then when it comes to counting cards, what happens there is, just, to, just in case you don't know, you know, what does it mean when they say counting cards and how does that help? So in blackjack, the, the house has an advantage, even if you play perfectly, right? Even if, you, if you're a robot, you're commander data from Star Trek, and you memorize basic strategy. Nonetheless, if you sit at a table where there's a freshly shuffled deck or multiple decks that are pretty new into it, even playing perfectly, the rules of blackjack are such that the house has a slight advantage. But it's it's not a big one, right? So if you just want to have a good time and go to Vegas and sort of tread water almost, if you learn basic strategy well and go play at the blackjack table and don't put up crazy bets as a fraction of your bankroll, you could play for a long time and enjoy the drinks and the shows and whatever. Maybe get comped meals and stuff. But still, you're going to lose. However, if you count cards, right? So if you have some system whereby you keep track of what's already been played, so that gives you information about the remaining deck or decks if they're playing with multiple decks in the shoe, then what happens is in certain situations, the remainder of the cards make it so that play is advantageous for the player. So again, with a freshly shuffled deck, the player is expected to lose in the long run. But if you're keeping track of the cards that go by, so if you see in particular, like a lot of threes, fours, fives, and sixes go by and not a lot of paint cards or aces, meaning now, so if you see that, you see a bunch of threes and fours and fives and sixes, and you don't see any tens or aces or the, the proportions, then that means the remainder of the deck that's going to be dealt out, you know, in upcoming hands is more rich in paint cards and aces than a, than a standard freshly shuffled deck. So what you do is you increase your bet. So that that's how counting cards works when it comes to blackjack, is that by keeping track of what's been played, you have a better sense of when... So it doesn't always happen, right? You could be counting cards and see in the first few hands, a bunch of tens and aces come out. That means the remainder of the deck is particularly disadvantageous to the player. So maybe you want to get up and go to the bathroom or something. All right. So th that's the spirit of it. So anyway, and by the way, folks, I think the casinos still have an official policy of frowning on card counting. So I'm not telling anyone to do this. I'm just explaining how it worked and what was in the book that I read back in high school. So what does it mean to say, hey, if I have a, a 12, a hard 12, and when I say hard, I mean it's not built with an ace. Like, so there's no option. It's like I got like a 10 and a 2, let's say, or a 4 and an 8. So I have a hard 12, and the dealer's showing a 2. What do I do? And then, you know, the, the thing can tell you, you know, do you either hit or stand? So the way they solved that, again, they didn't use logic. It's not that they reasoned through it. They just had a computer simulation. And the, and the computer just ran millions of hands and kept track of what happened with various strategies and then just said, okay, played over enough hands in this situation, the thing that pays off the most for the player 
is this strategy. In other words, this strategy will give you the most money in the long run compared to alternate legal strategies available to you if you ever find yourself in this situation. So let me tell you one that's particularly interesting is when you, sorry, when the dealer's up card is an ace, right? So the dealer is dealing out the blackjack hands, boom, 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 boom. It goes, everyone gets one card, including the dealer, then everyone gets a second card, and then the dealer has an up card. What if that's an ace? Well, at least in the standard rules, at that point, before the dealer checks to see if he has blackjack, right? If he has a, a 10 or a paint card underneath, which combined with the ace means the dealer has blackjack. Before the dealer checks, he first offers all the players the chance to buy insurance, is what it's called. And so there, what you're doing is, is you're, it's a side bet. It, has, it doesn't affect your original bet for that hand, but you can put up uh, chips up to half of what your original bet was. And so you're, you're doing a side bet that will pay off if the dealer does in fact have blackjack and will lose if the dealer doesn't. And so the reason it's called insurance, and, oh, and it pays two to one, that side bet, the so-called insurance. And so the reason they call insurance, of course, is that if the dealer does, let's say you take insurance and you've put up, you know, half of your original wager up in additional chips, the dealer checks up, he does have it. So what happens is you lose your bet in most cases, right? Your original wager, because the dealer has blackjack and you, you don't. And so the dealer takes your money from that, but then pays you two to one on your side bet. And so you just end up treading water. You see how that works? So that's why it's called, it's like you're insuring your original bet against the catastrophe of the dealer having blackjack. And so if the dealer does have blackjack, if you fully insured, then you walk away unscathed. You protected your hand against the dealer's blackjack. That's the idea. However, if the dealer doesn't have blackjack, oops, you just lose that side bet, right? If you put up the half stack of chips, you know, half of the height of the, your original bet, now you just lose that and now you still got to play the hand. So if the dealer happens to beat you, even though he didn't have blackjack with this hand, now you end up losing one and a half times your original bet on this hand. Okay, so that's how it works. So with a freshly shuffled deck, the correct strategy is to decline insurance. And again, it's a side bet. It's independent of what you're handed. And so that's even true, even in the case where you also have blackjack. So this is something, I mean, it's rare, but this is something that's interesting. So if you have, which I didn't realize at first, but when we were playing this in our home games, we didn't know this was a legal thing. And it was only until I read this book talking about it that I realized, oh, wow, you're allowed to do that? That if you, if you get dealt blackjack, and by the way, blackjack does not mean that your cards add up to 21 if you're hitting. To have blackjack means right off the fresh, you know, shot the, the dealing right away, the first two cards you get are give you 21. That's what... That's what it means to get dealt blackjack. And so, so normally, if you, if you get blackjack, not only do you win, but you get paid three to two. Uh, right? So if you had bet $100 and you get blackjack, it's not just that they give you $100, they give you $150. All right, so it's really good to get blackjack. And that's, by the way, partly why, if you're counting cards, it's advantageous for the player because you increase your bet if the remainder of the deck is rich in tens and aces you're more likely to get a blackjack where you get paid three to two. So that's why the player can have an advantage in that scenario and, and why you want to 
increase your bet size when the deck's advantageous. Okay, so what's cool is if you have black, let's say you know the dealer's dealing, you have blackjack, you get in whatever, an ace and a jack. So you're like, yes. And then the dealer puts his up card and it's an ace. Oh, man. Because any other card, well, I guess he could have a face, a 10 card showing and an ace buried. But he's got an eight. Normally you think, oh, I was going to get paid three to two. And it's now, oh. And so what's interesting is you can still take out insurance there and it's called even money. If in the case where you have a blackjack and the dealer has an ace, because technically what's happening is you're doing the side bet. And then no matter what the dealer has on net, you're just going to win your original bet. So again, let's say you put $100 in chips up you get double blackjack. Now the dealer's showing an ace and they said, do you want to have ins take insurance or not? So you say, if you say yes, you put $50 in, in chips up there and so the 50 is betting that he has it and it pays two to one if he does have it. So if the dealer doesn't have it, what happens? You lose your $50 insurance, the side bet, but then you get paid three to two. So you lose the 50 and then get paid 150. So you still got paid on that 100 for that hand. And remember, you had originally wagered 100. If the dealer does have blackjack, what happens? Well, you get paid two to one on your side bet, right? So you put up 50. So you get paid 100 because of the insurance. And then you push on the blackjack, right? Your blackjack is a tie with the dealer's blackjack. So the dealer doesn't take your $100 in chips that you originally wagered because you pushed. So again, on net, you got 100 on that hand. So that's why it's called even money. If you take out insurance when you are dealt a blackjack and the dealer's showing an ace, the dealer could say to you, do you want to just take even money? And what that means is you're just saying, just give me the hundred. All right, so the book was saying that's not the correct play to make. Now, if you're counting cards and you know that the deck is rich in tens, then maybe it is the right play. But in terms of a freshly shuffled deck, and especially because off of a freshly shuffled deck, you're seeing your 10 and your ace against the, de and the dealer's ace, right? So if it was just you and the dealer playing with a single deck, you know, clearly the remainder of the deck is not rich in tens relative to a fresh one because you're, anyway. Um, so you're not supposed to take it. And the reason is just, you know, think through why not. So when you decline it, what can happen? What if the dealer does have blackjack? Oops, well, then you push and you don't get any money. But you also aren't losing the 50 that you put up in the cases when the dealer doesn't have blackjack, right? If you decline the insurance, all right? So that's, that's the intuition. So remember, it's, it's a side bet, right? It's very tempting to think whether you take insurance or not should depend on what your own hand is. But no, it doesn't affect your hand and whether you're going to, you know, that's a, that's a sunk cost. The fact that you put up 100 and now you got to have your hand face what the dealer has, that decision has already been made. When the dealer now gives you more information and shows that the dealer has an ace showing and then says, do you want to take insurance on this? That is a, a separate thing, right? And so if, if you wouldn't take insurance when you have a six or the hard 16, you shouldn't take insurance when you have a blackjack either. It's the same, it's the same thing. Okay, so um, even though that's the rule, I, in practice, often at the casino, would go ahead and take the even money. 
Like, for example, let's say I was playing for a while, and this is back when I was in high school or early college, let's say. So, you know, the numbers weren't big. I didn't, you know, I didn't have a real job or anything. Incidentally, once I did get a real job, I stopped gambling because it was like, no, I worked hard for this money and it'd be irresponsible for me to lose money gambling. But back in high school and stuff, we used to gamble all the time. So I'm saying in an actual casino, let's say I had been down, you know, I was bouncing around. And if I was down $50 and then I had a really big hand, like and I had a $50 handout and I had blackjack and then the dealer has an ace up, I probably would have taken insurance just to be back to even, you know, for sure. Because again, if you, if you risk it and you say, no, I'm declining the insurance and then the dealer has it, you get nothing that hand. So the issue is, you know, do you want to, so why is it right? Why does the book say the correct move is to not insure in that situation? It's because it's again, just the, the, the way the numbers work out, the probabilities that the, the dealer probably does not have blackjack. And so that's why it's, or rather the, the two to one, it works out that even with the two to one payoff, it's still not a good bet. So it's not merely the dealer probably doesn't have it. And so it just, the idea is that in the scenario where you don't insure, the dealer doesn't have it. And so those, in those outcomes, you get paid three to two. And that more than compensates for the fact that once in a while, the dealer is going to actually have it. And then it's just a push. All right, so it's better to get paid the three to two when he doesn't have it than to push. Okay, so that that's the way it, it works out. And so now here, well, I just want to review that is I think my high school self, if you had asked me to say, what do you mean? So what I would have said is I know the correct move in this situation is to not take the insurance out. But right now I'm very risk averse. Well, I probably might not use the phrase risk averse, but right now I don't want to risk it. I could have said just give me the thing. I don't, I don't want to gamble right now. I just want to get my money and, and sort of back off in, in relief, depending on the situation. Whereas if I had been way up, then yeah, sure, I would have declined the insurance. So I think I would have contrasted, you know, the correct move with one based on my desire to minimize risk or to take the uncertainty out of it, to just get the sure thing. So my point is, you know, if you had asked me, what do you mean though by the correct thing? I probably would have given one of two types of answers. I probably would have said, oh yeah, the, the move that you know, maximizes the expected payoff. Or I would have said the move that in the long run pays the most. I probably would have said either thing. And so that's true. Either of those statements, I think actually does characterize you know, the, what the correct play is in, in blackjack there. But my point is in general, those are not equivalent ways of describing a strategy. In a, in a, you know, a risky scenario, even if you know all the relevant variables. Okay, so that's, I kind of wanted to warm you up to thinking like this. But now um, let's switch over to Kelly's discussion. W one last little thing. When we talk about expectation or expected value, what we mean is the probability of something or each possible outcome and then whatever the value is of that outcome multiplied by the probability of it happening and then you add it all up across all possible outcomes. That's the expectation, the mathematical expectation of this outcome. So for example, if you're going to take one die, you know, like how there's dice, but just one of them, one die, and you say, I'm going to roll this die once, what's the expected value of the die roll in terms of, you know, how many dots are we going to see? It, de it depends what you mean. But if you just say, what's the expected roll, 
people could mean different things by that. And I just want to underline this distinction because it's important. Probably most people, certainly those trained in math and statistics, if you said, what's the expected value of a die roll, if you just did it once, they would probably say 3.5. And what they mean is, if you go through and say, okay, well, what, what, could, what are all the things that could happen? Well, a one could come up, where the chances of that, you know, multiply by one-sixth. A two could come up, there's a one-sixth chance of that. Da, 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 and all six things. And you multiply each of those outcomes by one-sixth, because that's the probability of any one of those six things happening, and then add all that up that adds up to 3.5. Another you know, intuitive way of seeing it is half the rolls are you know, one, two, three, and then the other half are four, five, six. And so the middle value is 3.5, like the median, if you think of it that way. And since they're all equally probable, that's also going to be the expectation. All right. But on the other hand, you can understand someone just who speaks plain English and hasn't been trained in statistics. If you said, wait a minute, you're saying the expected role is a three-point... It's impossible. 3.5 can't come up. Do you mean a three or a four? You know, like, so there's that thing too, where if you're trying to say something or, or another way of doing it is to say, if you want to say a number to minimize the square of the error, then, you know, you could, do, you could do the expectation that way. But again, somebody might understandably say, what are you talking about? If you say, I expect a 3.5 to come up, you're guaranteed to be wrong. So again, it's just the, the, the language there that w when people talk about expectation or expected value, if what they really mean is, you know, probably what they mean is mathematical expectation. I'm just pointing out sometimes the intuition we have verbally from that is not what the math lines up with. And so the die roll is a simple example. And we're going to see that ambiguity play a role here now. So um, what Kelly did in this paper is he was imagining, again, somebody that was getting information that was making the person have an edge when it came to a, a betting event, like a horse race or something. So in the limit, you know, suppose the person was getting the, knew who the winner of the horse race was before it hit the, you know, the, the gambling circuits. And so the person could go in with the old odds that the bookies had posted and go in and bet, you know, an even money bet on who the gambler now knew was the winner because that information just hadn't reached, you know, the other, uh, the gambling people yet. So clearly what you would do in that situation is bet everything, right? If you knew for sure and you weren't worried about them cheating you or something, clearly you would risk your entire bankroll, your entire capital value and double your money with certainty. But that's not the more, the most interesting case. The most, the more interesting case is what if, you get a signal that just gives you an edge, but not a perfect edge. And so here, um, Kelly says, assume that you're, you know, the, you know you're going to win the bet with probability Q. And he doesn't actually spell this out, but he, in the context, it's assumed that Q is bigger than 0 0.5. All right. And then, so Kelly goes through and finds out that, you know, what do you want to do? And so here's the part where it gets interesting. One possible strategy, well, let me put it to you this way. I'm going to change the way he did. If you had asked my high school self, okay, what's the right thing to do here? What's the correct move? In the same way that not taking out insurance is the correct move when you're playing blackjack. Even though you, would, you acknowledge sometimes, Bob, you might deviate from the correct move or what the book says. 
what, what should the book say here in this kind of a situation? And you're going to, and incidentally, also in this, um, in this setup, Kelly has the idea that this is going to happen over and over, that you're going to be able to repeatedly gamble each time getting the same signal. So each, you know, if the cue is the same each time, it, you can change it too to say the cue varies with each round. But for right now, let's do the simple case where the gambler is going to play this game where it's even money, right? So you, you put up a certain amount of money. If you lose, you lose how much you bet. If you win, you get paid how much you bet. That's what we mean by even money. And, but you have an edge that you know the chance of you winning, of you knowing which side to bet on is Q, where Q is a probability that's bigger than 0.5, but it's less than one. And you're just going to be able to do this game over and over again. So if you asked my high school self, what do you think they should say there for the correct play? What, what criterion should they use to evaluate it? So what's the definition of what the correct play does or the book, the book recommendation? I think I would have said one of two things. I think I could, either could have said the thing that maximizes the expected payoff or I would have said the thing that in the long run makes me the most money. And those actually, you know, and I would have thought those were roughly the, you know, the equivalent ways of pointing to the same strategy. And so here, that's not true. So if you, every time, just let it ride. You bet your whole bankroll every round, you aided with your knowledge, you know, that signal so that you have a slight advantage or could be a bit large advantage depending on how big Q is. That's actually, that strategy maximizes the expected value of your bankroll for any given N, right? So if N is the number of times you play this game, then it actually maximizes the expected value of your bankroll in round N, you know, after you play. If your strategy is every round, you let it ride. You, you know, so you bet the first time you win. Now you have twice what you started with. You then bet it all. You win again. Now you have four times. You bet it all. You win again. Now you have eight times. And you just keep doing that over and over. Even if N, even if you know ahead of time that N is 10,000, that you're going to play this game 10,000 times in a row, the strategy that maximizes the expected, the mathematical expectation of the value of your bankroll in round 10,000, the strategy that does that is for you to bet everything 10,000 times in a row. And if that seems, well, okay, hang on. So that's interesting, right? And I think your common sense, your spidey sense is tingling. You're like, wait a minute, what? That, that's crazy. That can't be the right strategy because by stipulation or by construction, this example, if you hit zero, you're done, right? You, there's no influx of money from the outside. And so that's called, you know, called the gambler's ruin, I think, is the principle. And so, so that's what Kelly says in the paper. He says, uh, you know, that one, you know, one possible strategy that the gambler could follow is to just keep betting the entire bankroll each round. And the, the virtue of that is that it maximizes the expected value of the bankroll for any given end. And then he says, but of course, that's little consolation since for large N, you will probably be broke. And in fact, in the limit, right, as N goes to infinity, the probability of your bankroll being zero approaches one with that strategy, right? So that's interesting that those are both correct mathematical statements. It is simultaneously correct to say, on the one hand, 
the strategy of just letting it ride every round maximizes the mathematical expectation of your bankroll for any round N, doesn't matter how big N is. And yet it's also true to say that as N gets large, the probability of your bankroll being zero goes to one. So as far as, um, I would if you're mathematically inclined, I would encourage you just to convince yourself, go through and calculate, just do it for two rounds and you'll see how it works. Right. So you just the, the first round, imagine if it was just a one shot thing, convince yourself that betting everything is the way to maximize the expectation of your bankroll at the end of the round. Because, you know, the other options are you don't bet anything or you bet some fraction. And so just you go convince yourself the way it works out is if you don't bet anything, then obviously you end up with the same amount next, you know, at the end of the round. And then since you have an edge, betting something in expectation is better than just not betting. And even though, because if you do bet, you know, you might lose. Still, since you have an edge in terms of the expectations, it's probably going to pay off on net for you to bet something. And then just the, the linear way it works with the expectation, given that you're going to bet anything, if you bet at all, that's the way to maximize. I'm, I'm giving the intuition. You can just do it with the math if you want. Okay, so for a lot of you listeners I, who, you know, who don't, want to get a piece of paper and do the actual math, I think you can understand how it doesn't sound so crazy to do it once, right? And in particular, I mean, let me exaggerate. Suppose Q is 0.95, right? So there's a 95% chance you're going to win this bet and you're only going to do it once. Probably doesn't sound so crazy to you, right? For someone to say, well, given your huge edge there, just go ahead and risk everything just get, because you're probably going to win, in which case you want to really bank those winnings. Like take advantage. You got a good situation here, take advantage of it. And that's the way to maximize the expected value of your... Yeah, it's true. You might lose, but probably you're not going to. And so you might as well swing for the fences. Right? I'm just giving intuition here. That's not the way you would solve it mathematically, but that's kind of how it, why it makes sense. So what's nutty though is you think, okay, but I could see doing it for one round, but for 10,000 rounds, how could it possibly... And so what's going on here is the way to reconcile that. Even though, like I said, they're both simultaneously true. It's true that... If what you're trying to do is maximize the ex the mathematical expectation of your bankroll after the 10,000th round, what you do is you adopt a strategy of you let it ride every single round. It's also true that if I say, given that I'm letting it ride every single round, what's the probability that the value of my bankroll after round 10,000 is going to be zero? It's not exactly one, but it's really close to one. And if I, as I make N get bigger, we do 100,000 rounds, a million rounds, a billion rounds, then the probability that the value of my bankroll at the terminal round is zero approaches one. I can make it arbitrarily close to one. All right. So those are both true statements. So what's going on is you can have events that are the probability of them goes to zero, but they're not impossible. Right. And so like if you're uh, picking a number between a real number between zero and one, then you're going to grab some number and the probability that you were going to grab that particular number is zero. Like that's the only way to make the stuff work. All right. But it's not impossible. You did pick it. Or if you're uh, throwing a dart at a dartboard and you want to say like, what's the probability of landing in a certain region? What you do is you look at like, like if you're, if you're pointing like a certain green section of the dartboard and you say, what's the probability I'm going to throw it. Like if I just quote randomly throw the dart, at the dartboard, 
it's a it's a ratio, you know, it's a proportion, the area of the region in question compared to the area of the whole dartboard. Like, so if you want to say, what's the chance it lands on the left side with the lines drawn straight down the middle? Well, that's, you know, 50%. So then if you just keep narrowing and say, what's the chance that hits this one little point on the dartboard? Well, technically it's zero because, you know, the area of a point is zero. All right, so that's, this is mathematically what's going on. So here, that strategy of just letting it ride, technically what's going on is there's this, you know, in general, you play 10,000 rounds in a row. All outcomes except one involve disaster. At some point, you lose, and then you get zero, and then you have zero from the rest from that point forward. But there's one path where you just win 10,000 times in a row. And then what happens along that one path is that you make the most money possible. You keep doubling your money. Right, so whatever your initial bankroll was, then it's multiplied by two to the ten thousand if you play ten thousand rounds, and so that's why then when you do the expectation, the, what's the expectation of the value of your bankroll in round ten thousand? You're doing, you know, all the other things, you know, the the probability weight times uh, zero, and then the probability of that one super lucky string of wins times the humongous payoff you get there. And just the way the math works out, that number is bigger than with any other strategy. Just like you can kind of see it in, you know, intuitively or you can do it mechanically if you want with one round that why, why risking everything is the way to maximize the expectation of your bankroll going into round two if you bet everything in round one. If you can convince yourself that it's not crazy there, well, it's the same principle going through round 10,000. Okay, so... That's real interesting. And so what Kelly was saying, though, is that, that can't be right or, or surely it's relevant to the investor or the gambler, the fact that if you keep doing that, the probability of you hitting zero is going to go to one. And so that's why Kelly proposed his alternative criterion, which again was saying you only risk. So yeah, when, when it's advantageous to you, when Q is bigger than 0.5, go ahead and, and bet, but don't bet at all because in case you lose, that's disastrous. And so he um, proposed, again, this, the formula that the, the magic optimal fraction of your bankroll is 2Q minus 1. So there, notice, un, except in the case where Q is 1, you're never betting everything. So you're never going to get wiped out under his criterion. If you, if you suffer a bunch of losses, that's going to knock down the absolute size of your bet pretty quickly because your bankroll shrinks. And so that's why you'll never hit zero using his criterion. But besides just the fact that you're never going to hit zero, the thing that's really going for it and you know how he came up with that, what he chose is um, that is the limiting value. Where He came up with an expression of what's the limiting value of my bankroll. Right, so an expression here. Here's the value of the bankroll, and then what's the limit of that? Is then goes to infinity, based on you know investing some fraction. And then he went and got that formula. Then he said, okay, now what fraction maximizes that number? So the two Q minus one. What's special about at every stage investing that fraction of your bankroll on that round is using that strategy as n goes to infinity. The probability of you outperforming any other strategy 
that tells you to do something different goes to one. All right. So another way of expressing it is to say, if you've got your twin and you start with the same bankroll and your strategy is going to be to follow Kelly's criterion and your twin is going to do something else. So when we say, oh, something else, it means that it tells the person to do something different, at least one point along the way, right? So like if they just use different words, but it was the same bet size every time, then it would be equivalent mathematically. But when we're saying using a strategy that does something else, then um, over time, we can say the probability that you will have more money than your twin goes to one. Or another way of saying it is that you almost surely will outperform your twin who uses some strategy besides the Kelly criterion. All right. And so that's, so that's kind of cool, right? And you could see, oh, so that's why people think that that's the scientific approach or the correct way to gamble or invest. Obviously in practice, you know, how would you know what Q is and that sort of thing? But at least to say in a stylized example where we did know that stuff, what would be the correct thing to do? And Kelly gave what he thought was a you know, pretty straightforward criterion. And again, like I said, that what you might see this discussed as is to say um, maximizing the logarithm of wealth. And another way of talking about it is that it maximizes the geometric mean. There's another mathematically equivalent way or the expectation of the geometric mean, right? So it's like maximizing the expectation of the long run growth rate. So if you're thinking about an investment strategy, yeah, the one that maximizes the expectation of my long run growth rate, why wouldn't I do that? Right? So those are all mathematically equivalent ways of describing this thing. All right. So then the economists came in and their main point, and this was Paul Samuelson had this infamous article where it was in the 1979. Journal of Business and Finance or something like that. And I'll, I'll link to this stuff, folks. So it's bobmurphyshow.com slash 110. I'll give the links. But he, this is the one where some of you may remember this from my blog, where Samuelson was getting so exasperated with these people who keep holding up the Kelly criterion as the, as the optimal thing. And like, how can anyone dispute that? That he just wrote an article all in one syllable words. Like to be like, you know, do you understand the words coming out of my mouth? You know, and he, because he was, he was just trying to say, like, in other words, I, I'm talking to children here. Let me, let me say it so you don't miss it. Incidentally, he was bluffing. There was, there's at least one spot in his article, and someone on my blog pointed this out, where Samuelson, he, well, he had bet the word better near the end. So better is more than one syllable. So that's just kind of funny that Samuelson is real cocky and he's full of it. Or in his mind, he was just, seeing if he could get away with it, thought it was hilarious. Who knows? But in any event, he claimed it was all one-syllable words, but actually some of them weren't. Um, so the, the main thing is economists were pointing out that no, this, it, it depends on your attitude toward risk. That This is not an objective way of, um, an objective approach to investment. You can't just say any institutional investor should use this approach. That's, that doesn't follow. You know, people have different attitudes toward risk. And what, by, by saying this is the correct way, all you're doing is elevating one particular attitude or tolerance for risk above the other ones. And you're claiming it's subjective when no, it, it is, it's still subjective. All right. So let me just try to get you to see that. So imagine the defender of the Kelly criterion says, yeah, who could possibly deny this? This, this is obviously the right thing to do. And then somebody comes along 
who says, no, actually, I don't use the Kelly criterion. You, you guys are too conservative and you're too self-centered. You say, what were you talking about? He says, okay, listen, in my culture, well, he goes, first, I'm going to give you an analogy. He says, suppose that there's a, um, you know, someone who has a hundred employees and he's trained them all to count cards properly, whatever. And he's going to send them to the casino and they each have the same starting bankroll. Are you, can you see why the orders he would give those employees or those agents is to just maximize, do what they can to maximize the expected value of their bankroll when they're done and not to use the Kelly criterion? Because it's all right if one person goes down because that's not your whole uh, you know, value at risk, right? From the perspective of the principal, the person who hired these 100 people, what he cares about at the end of the day is the total bankroll of all 100 of them. So if each of them is is adopting a strategy that's risky and, re- and re- could result in, you know, hitting zero, but it's spread over 100 such people, that's okay, all right? And so um, s- switch to a different example. If, you know, doing that game where we, we get to let, let it ride each time and you win with probability Q and it seems nutty, like, yeah, I could see why you might want to do it for one round or two rounds even, but if you're going to do it for a thousand rounds in a row, clearly, one would think, just letting it ride every round is crazy. Even though, yes, technically that maximizes the expected value of the bankroll in round 1,000, still, if there's going to be a 99.99999% chance that the value will, in fact, be zero for any particular run. And so now the guy says, you know, that, that's, that's fine, except, you know what? What if I have... 500 million people on my payroll and they're all going to play this game for a thousand rounds. All right. If you, if, if you want to make the numbers better, you can say like play the game a hundred rounds and I'm going to have 500 million people doing it. All right. And so you, you can see how that works. So if, the, if Q is 0.99 or something, then if I have 500 million people playing it, some of them might hit. All right. So by the way, folks, I didn't prepare my notes here. I didn't run through the calculations to get my binomial thing out. So I'm just giving you the flavor of it. I'm not going to tell you the exact, you know, I could have picked the numbers to be compelling and giving you the exact things. I didn't, I didn't do that. But you get the idea that what sounds crazy for one person to do, because that person almost certainly is not going to see the string of successes. If you had a bunch of people side by side doing the same game, and you multiply, you know, he had millions of such people doing it. So now you say, yeah, the chance of any one of my agents playing this game 100 times in a row and winning 100 times in a row is pretty small, but I have 500 million people doing it. And so over the whole population, some of them are going to hit. And then like we said, by construction, if what they're doing is the thing that maximizes that final payoff in expectation, now it's okay. Because again, it's what happens is there's a small probability that you just crush. You just hit it out of the park. And so if I have enough people playing, the chance of at least one of them hitting goes up the more people I have playing. And so what if you know, that compensates for it, that I have enough people playing to, to overcome the fact that any individual one is unlikely to, to get it. All right. And so the person might get, you know, saying this, he's like, hey, you with me so far? And I could see the other person saying, oh, oh okay, yeah. And I said, all right. And so now in my culture, we're not self-centered, right? You're thinking of it in terms of, oh, my bankroll or whatever. No, the way we think of things over here is we just want to do what's in 
the national interest, let's say, or we just view ourselves as a big community, even in the, in the investment world. And so it's not a matter of like, is our hedge fund going to outperform? It's just, we want to allocate capital the best way possible for society. And we, you know, we don't consume much. You know, we go out and earn money for its own sake. We've read Bob Murphy stuff on the social function of stock speculators and whatnot. So we're, we just view it as contributing to society and whether my hedge fund returns 60 quadrillion percent or goes bust, I don't really care. What's important is that I'm doing my part in the overall, you know, method of, of our financial sector to correctly allocate funds. And so we adopt a strategy that we know if everybody else adopted this strategy, that's what would maximize the value of all of the hedge funds after any given number of uh, rounds of play or time in the stock market. And so that's, that's how we do it. That's why we do it that way. Like, cause it's the golden rule, right? I'm just having, I'm just doing what I wish everybody would do. Cause by assumption, we got hundreds of millions of people in our economy, our society. And so we all act doing the thing that would maximize, you know, the total payoff. And we don't worry so much about, well, whose is it? Whereas you are very self-centered and just thinking of it in terms of your own bottom line. Okay. So that's kind of contrived, I grant you. But I'm just trying to get you to see that there is something there that you can't just throw out is irrelevant. The fact that the let it ride strategy does maximize the mathematical expectation of that terminal value. That, you know, that's not an irrelevant fact. Right? And so, so what's going on is actually the Kelly criterion. What, what are they going to say? Is they going, no, that's too risky. So see how risk is, is built in there. Right? So, it's, so some people argue as if the Kelly criterion takes risk out of it and say, no, 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 regardless of your attitude toward risk, the Kelly criterion makes you end up with more money than anybody else. And, th and that's not true, right? That's a sloppy way of putting it. And because if that were true, if you knew for certainty the Kelly criterion makes you end up with more money, then yeah, it's true that risk doesn't matter. Attitudes toward risk don't matter. But again, that, that's not, that's actually not the, you know, the more accurate statement is the probability of you beating someone using a rival strategy approaches one. But that's, again, not the same thing because someone else could say quite truthfully, no, my strategy maximizes the expected value of, the, of what I have after 10,000 rounds, right? So to say what strategy gives you, has you end up with more money, that's ambiguous. When you try to pin it down mathematically, different strategies are the optimal ones depending on what exact, uh, how you operationalize, what does it mean to end up with more money? Okay. Um, and so then, so you see the Kelly criterion does have a notion of risk, of attitudes toward risk built into it. And then just to end this, I'll just mention, so now you can see why, oh, wait a minute, it's not, it's actually not obvious that everybody who's a long run institutional investor ought to use the Kelly criterion because what if somebody going the other way, you know, someone managing a life insurance company, for example, you could see them saying to us, the important thing is not merely that we want to beat our twin after an arbitrarily large number of rounds of play. It's also that we want to, you know, minimize the volatility along the way. And the Kelly criterion makes us bet more each round than we feel comfortable doing. So like, for example, you could just do half the Kelly criterion. That would be more conservative. So it's true. Over time, you wouldn't um, 
the probability that someone doing the Kelly criteria and has more money than you approaches one, but also, you know, the chance of you not hitting various floors in the value of your portfolio also is affected by that strategy choice on your part. All right. So that's, that's the way I think without getting more technical, that just to give you the flavor of what these debates were and to show that a lot of it hinges on um, saying things in, with English that actually have multiple meanings in math because the English statement is ambiguous. And so the papers I'll link to again, bobmurphyshow.com slash 110, you can see how they're, they're largely talking past each other, that they're, they're each making true statements mathematically and the other parties just like kind of like, yeah, but what I'm saying is, and so they both have some merit in what they're doing. All right, well, that's a good place to stop for now. Thanks for listening, everyone, and I'll see you next time. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.